So uh, this last week I was uh, on the phone with a friend of mine from Southern California. He pastors Calvary Chapel Inglewood, and uh, his name is Bill, and we had to connect over the phone to sync up some dates because he's going to come here uh, later in September and teach on a Sunday, but also probably do some work with our men later on next year. So we were just kind of connecting and talking. And, and as we were, we began to fellowship just about the different things that God is doing you know, in our lives and some praise reports and stuff like that. And I tend to be a little slower with stuff like that when somebody asks me, you know, I don't know if you're like this, but when someone asks me like, how's it going? You know, I'm like, good, it's good. You know, I don't know really what else to say, but he is one of these guys where when you ask him, how's it going? He just starts like praising the Lord for all this stuff, you know? And so he started telling me about different people that had recently gotten saved in their church and then water baptized in their church and then had begun their discipleship journey and were beginning to learn and grow and come out of their old life and walk in the newness of life that they now have in Christ. And, and as he just was telling me all these different stories, I just found myself getting encouraged by everything that he was sharing. And the thought that I had was real simple. It was just this man that I'm talking to right now. He is a true friend of Christ. He is a true friend of Jesus. He's just one of those people walking the earth. I know many of them, many of you are seated here this morning, who has a priority for the kingdom, who loves Christ, who loves the Lord, and has built his life to bring honor and glory to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Have you ever been refreshed by somebody like that, by, by a conversation like that? You know, you just come across someone, maybe you didn't even know. You're like, yeah, you know, they're a believer, but you get to talk with them a little bit more and you realize like, oh wow, you're like one of those believers. You know, you are into it. You, you are discipling people. You are telling people about the Lord. You have built your life in that kind of way. Like everything about you, you know, you're just you're like, you, you, are, you are into the kingdom of God. You know, people like that are just so refreshing. And I say that or tell that story because today in David's life, in this episode, we're going to see a man who is banished from Israel because of his son Absalom. He's going to have to run away from Jerusalem because his son Absalom will not only attempt to, but will successfully steal the throne from his father. And as David runs, most of the people in Israel's hearts are swayed to Absalom, but a few, the friends of David, they remain with him. They follow him. They're devoted to him. And when times get tough in David's life, the proof of the true followers of David are seen in this chapter. And so as we consider these true followers of Jesus, I think it's good for us to consider what it would mean for us to be a true uh, follower of Christ, to be a real friend to Jesus in times where he's not as popular, in times where not as many people will devote themselves to him publicly. Will we be, like the characters in David's life, true friends of our Lord? And what I want to show you as we look at each one of these characters who followed David into the wilderness, I want to show you that there was something about David that attracted them to him. And in the same way, the things that they were attracted to about David are the very things that we can find ourselves to a stronger degree attracted to about Jesus 
so that we might follow him in the wilderness, so to speak. All right, so that's where we're going in our passage and uh, in the, the text today. So there's a backdrop to all this. I already mentioned it. Absalom is going to try to steal the throne. So let's read of it in the first 12 verses. It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, just by way of reminder, especially if you haven't been here for a little while, Absalom is David's son. And Absalom uh, had killed David's oldest son, a man named Amnon, because Amnon had raped Absalom's sister, a woman named Tamar. And rather than speaking into Absalom's life or Tamar's life or Amnon's life, David just sort of sat idly by. He just watched his family sort of implode. He had every right to speak into their lives, but he felt disqualified because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and so he remained silent. He just kind of watched it all happen. After Absalom killed Amnon, he ran away to the country of Geshur, where his father was, uh, his great, uh, his grandfather was the king. And so he was there for three years in hiding, but eventually organized a way for himself to come back into Israel. And so now Absalom is back for two years. He could not see David. David wouldn't let him see him. But after two years, David summons him. He kisses him. Absalom falls to the ground. But it's a very cool reception. There's not a lot of warmth there. And so now, after a couple of years, Absalom is going to try to steal the throne from his father. One of his first moves, we read there in verse 1, it's just so obvious. He gets a chariot he gets horses, and he gets 50 men to run in front of him. This was like such like a non-Israelite leader move. No prophet did this. No priest would do this. David hadn't done it. Saul wouldn't do it. They, they respected humility, but Absalom probably had learned something from his grandfather in Geshur. And so he's like, this is the way kings are really supposed to do it. So he gets a chariot, he gets horses, he's riding along and he's like, what would be even better than a chariot and horses and everybody making a big deal out of me? It will be 50 men to run before me. How would you like to have that as your job, you know? And so he's just, he's obviously drawing attention to himself. We saw foreshadowings of this last week, right? Absalom was a handsome man, it said in last week's text, from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. There was not a blemish in him, and his hair was so thick that every time he cut it, they would actually weigh the hair. He was that vain, you know, like, don't sweep that up, weigh it, you know, before, before you throw it out. I, I want everybody to know how thick my hair is, you know, kind of thing. So we've already kind of gotten a hint at his vanity, and we see it here again in verse 1. And Absalom, verse 2, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So he put himself in a strategic position. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him in verse 3, see your claims are good and right. Now, why in the world would Absalom say that? All he asked was, where are you from? Once he found out they were from Israel, he's like, well, I don't even know what your claims are, but you're right. This was a very political move for Absalom. It was kind of his version of, oh, you're an Israelite. You're the kind of person I'm trying to sway right now. So whatever you think, you're right. It was a the customer is always right kind of perspective from Absalom. He said, though, in verse three, but there was no man 
designated by the king to hear you. He was insinuating that the king was too busy for the people. Then Absalom would say in verse 4, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. I almost imagine someone that he hired, like playing the violin in the background, you know, very, very sorrowfully, you know, as he said this, like, oh, that I were the king in Israel. I would give everyone justice. And whenever, verse 5, a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Rather than earning their hearts, he stole their hearts. Now all of this seems so obvious, doesn't it? I mean, you just see this guy, he's got the chariot, he's got 50 men going out in front of him, he stands at the gate, he's super manipulative, he's suggesting that David's too busy, you know, and all of this, like, we read it, and it's like, who in the world is going to fall for this? And we watch all of Israel, the, the hearts of the men of Israel are swayed by someone so incredibly obvious. And we ask ourselves, how in the world could this actually happen? I'll tell you how it happens. He was doing it to human beings. Human beings fall for stuff like this. We love stuff like this. Like, oh, you're about me. You're interested in me. You're saying I'm right. And we follow after a person like this. But he was dividing the kingdom. And at the end, verse 7, of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow Well, I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So Absalom arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. So he had this all organized throughout all of Israel. And with Absalom, verse 11, went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And well, verse 12, Absalom was offering the sacrifices. He sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, Ahithophel, just to remind you, is... David's chief counselor, Uh, David always listened to Ahithophel's advice. Uh, It was as if his counsel was like the word of God. Uh, But Ahithophel was also Bathsheba's grandfather. I mentioned that in a previous study. And so years have gone by since David did what he did to Bathsheba and to her husband Uriah, and Ahithophel more than likely has harbored bitterness in his heart for those long years. And now the opportunity finally comes to betray David and join a different king. And so when Absalom invites Ahithophel, hey, be my counselor now, leave uh, David, Ahithophel obliges, he follows after Uh, Absalom because of the bitterness uh, in his heart. And so the conspiracy is strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now verse 13, let's read what happens. The hearts of Israel are swayed. Everybody's following after them. And it says in verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. 
or else there would be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So not everyone was with Absalom. Some stayed with David. So the king, verse 16, went out and all his household after him. And the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. One of the first questions that we have to ask, or one of the first things we need to see in this story, is we have to wonder for a moment why David departed from Jerusalem. I mean, Absalom raises up this rebellion. He's swayed the hearts of the men of Israel. But when he gets the report that there's a conspiracy against him and his kingdom, rather than fight for his kingdom and fight for his throne, which he could have done. He was a warrior. He had mercenaries on his side. They could have fought. They could have battled against Absalom. Instead of making that decision, David decided to flee into the wilderness. It's possible that one of the reasons that David did this is because of his overly permissive nature towards his children. Over and over again, he would refuse to rebuff his kids. When they would do something in error, he would not confront them. He didn't confront Amnon. He didn't even bring comfort, not that he needed to correct Tamar for anything, but he didn't bring comfort to Tamar, and he didn't correct Absalom for the things that he was doing behind the scenes, and and when he took his brother Amnon's life. There was no correction. He seemed to be overly soft towards his children. He would allow them to get away with whatever. It seemed to be the pattern in David's life. He was a disengaged, it seems, uninvolved kind of father. And that might have been part of the reason that he abandoned Jerusalem at this moment. But he actually gives two reasons in verse 14 for why he thought he was leaving. Number one, in verse 14, he tells his servants, look, there is going to be no escape for us from Absalom. Apparently, he assessed the scene. He assessed Absalom's strength, and he said to himself, we can't win. This is not a fight that we can win. This is not a battle that we will have success in. Therefore, we must depart. But there was a second part of David's calculation, also in verse 14. Notice that he mentioned, lest Absalom bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The other consideration that David made was, I love Jerusalem. And if I stay here, and if I fight for my throne, the sword of Absalom is going to come down on this city. There's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be destruction. And I don't want Jerusalem with the tabernacle and the ark of God and the the new capital of God's uh, everlasting city. I don't want that to be destroyed. Therefore, I'm going to leave so that Jerusalem doesn't come under that kind of pain. And so, for all of these reasons combined, David made a decision to leave. It seems like real defeat in David's life. It's a real low point in David's life. His own son betrayed him. His throne is lost. Everything that he fought for, it was a struggle to get Jerusalem, and now he's just giving it away to his son, to his enemy. But what I want you to understand in the midst of all of this is that David had hope 
in his heart. He was not a man who was consigned to defeat. He actually believed that God was still at work in his life. And I get that from Psalm chapter 3, which David wrote during this episode. I'm going to read it to you this morning. You could, of course, turn there in your Bibles and follow along if you'd like, but I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation instead of the ESV that I'm teaching from, because the New Living Translation, there's just a poetry and a simplicity to their interpretation of it uh, in, in that particular psalm. It says in Psalm 3, a psalm of David regarding the time David fled from his son Absalom. He said, O Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying, God will never rescue him. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, yet I awoke in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. I love this part of the prayer. Slap all my enemies in the face. (laughs) Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's one of my favorite psalms. I especially love the lyric in verse 3. You, O Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory, the one who holds my head high. How many of you remember that old song that we used to sing, you know, that had that lyric? Whenever I'm like just singing before the Lord, I can barely remember any modern songs, but I always remember the songs I learned when I was growing up in the church. And this is one of my favorites, you know. Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. Like you're with me. You're protecting me. You're defending me. You're my strength. You are around me. David had this hope in the Lord in the midst of his defeat, in the midst of his despair. At this low point in his life, he had a strong hope and confidence in God. Look, this same hope that David had, we see more beautifully in the life of Jesus. Jesus had to go through something, of course, much more despairing and painful than David had to go through. He had to go through a much more severe betrayal. He went through not just the betrayal from Judas, but John says that when Jesus came to his own, the people of Israel, his own did not receive him. The very one that had been promised, the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for, he appeared and he was not received. He was crucified, of course, not just by the Jews, but also by the Romans and by all of us because our sins put him upon that cross. But when he came, he was rejected. There was cause for great sorrow, but in the midst of the sorrow, Jesus had great hope. You see, in the midst of the cross, in the midst of the pain, Jesus had a confidence in the kingdom that he was establishing through that very event. In fact, in his deepest point of despair, Jesus on the cross after hours of darkness said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
I mean, it was, it was a low point. Some have tried to ascribe sin to Jesus in that moment, but there was no sin there. It was just the confession of a human heart upon the cross and a divine heart upon the cross because Father and Son, for the first time in all of eternity, had been divided because the sin of humanity had come into Jesus as he consumed the judgment, the wrath of God upon the cross. But some have pointed out that Jesus quickly, it seems, transitioned into hope. He confessed his despair, but he then went on to say, I thirst, and then it is finished with triumph. And after saying it is finished with confidence, he said to his God and Father, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, in the midst of despair, there was also this hope in the heart of Christ. Now, when Jesus actually said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know this. He was saying the first sentence from Psalm 22. Some of you are sitting here today. You're like, I did not know that, but I'm going to act like I did know that. He just said I knew it. So you know this. Now you know this. It was the first line from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was a description of Jesus' crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented and hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked on the face of the earth. And as you read that description in detail of what Jesus' crucifixion would be like, it ends in triumph. Jesus knew this when he said it from the cross. It ends in triumph. In fact, if the first line of Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to the last line. It says that a day will come when his followers will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You see, what that describes is the body of Christ. That describes the church. That Jesus would die, that he would suffer, but Jesus died and suffered with a hope in his heart that a people yet unborn would hear about him and that they would hear about him through his own people through his own followers that we would proclaim and profess. He has done it. He has died and suffered for the sin of the world. You see, Jesus' hope in the midst of his agony was simply that, a people not yet born. Not yet physically born and not yet born of the Spirit. Not yet born again. Not yet believers. Jesus had that hope in his heart. Listen, there are a lot of people and a lot of movements and a lot of causes that people, humanity, over time, will place their hope and their confidence in. But there is no one like Jesus. You place your hope, your confidence, your trust in him, in his cause, in his movement, in his direction. And he holds hope that it's all going to come to pass, that his kingdom will be seen eternally. It is the ultimate cause in which we can place our hope, our belief. And so just as David's disciples would have seen his hope, we love the hope of Jesus. We want to follow him because of his great confidence that his kingdom will come. Now secondly, we have a next episode or the next little group that came to David. His servants were there in the first paragraph that we read there, but notice in verse 18 as we continue the story, it says, and all his servants 
pass by him. You know, he's there at the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's at the last house, and he's watching everybody go by, like a shepherd, you know, watching, counting his sheep. He's watching them all go by. And it says, and all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on uh, before the king. Now, I realize that when you read about all these ites in the Bible, sometimes it's hard to know, like, who are we talking about here and what's happening here? But just to give you or bring you into the story, these people are mercenaries that had previously converted to Israel, converted to God, and have become followers of David. Gath is a Philistine city and stronghold. It's actually where Goliath is from. And so there are all of these Philistines, Gathites or Gittites, who are following after David, 600 of them, formerly Philistine warriors, now Israelite warriors. They love David. They love the Lord, and they're following after him. So let's see what David does with this group. It says in verse 19, then the king said to Ittai the Gittite. Ittai is the leader of these 600 uh, Gittite soldiers. He says, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. He's referring to Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. In other words, you know, you've been on the run already just being here in the first place. Why do you want to go on the run again out into the wilderness? It's hard enough for you to be far from home by being in Jerusalem. Uh, so why go out into the wilderness with me? He says, verse 20, you came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us since I go, I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. So here David, he gives Ittai and all of his warriors total permission to go back into Jerusalem. You know, he just looks at them, he's like, you just got here. Now, Ittai hadn't actually just gotten there literally yesterday, but David was speaking in a poetic way to say, you haven't been here very long. I mean, you, you just got here. It's like you got here yesterday. So, you know, go back into Jerusalem. And he tells them, look, the Lord will bless you. I'm pronouncing the blessing of the Lord upon you if you give up. And, and the reason he gives is he says, look, I don't even know where I'm going. You know, why would you come with me out into a place that I don't even know where I'm going to go? Why would you come with me? It's going to be difficult. Just remain. So let's read of Ittai's response in verse 21. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Don't you love Ittai already? I mean, this is just a beautiful response. But doesn't it remind you of Ruth in the book of Ruth when Naomi was trying to tell Ruth, go back to Moab, I'm going back to Israel. And Ruth said, no, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And nothing but death is going to separate the two of us. She clung to Naomi. It's the same kind of spirit from Ittai to David. He says, look, your God is my God. And as the Lord lives, so he's a converted man. He's no longer following the Philistine gods. He's following the God of Israel. He says, I'm following you. I'm with you. I'm with your God. And wherever you die or wherever you live, that's where your servant will be. And David, verse 22, said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. 
This to me is just such beautiful devotion from this man, Ittai. There was something that he had seen about David. There was some kind of attraction that he had to this man. He'd seen a lot of military leaders. He'd seen a lot of lords. He'd potentially even watched the Philistine champion, Goliath. He'd seen his strength, his boldness. But over time, he began to realize there is no one who compares to David. There seems to be something in Ittai where he was able to look past the folly of the last few chapters in David's life, and he saw the true David. He saw the warrior. He saw the king. He saw the poet. He saw the man of prayer. He saw the man after God's own heart. And when he saw that, there was something within him that said, this is the man that I am going to follow. I'm going to hitch my wagon, so to speak, to him. I'm going to give my life for him and for his cause. This is beautiful, and David tried to dissuade Ittai from even following him. This reminds me of some of the ways that Jesus interacted with potential disciples in his own life. You might remember in Luke chapter 9 and verse 57, there was a day when they were going along on the road, and someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Doesn't that sound like a beautiful thing to say to Jesus? It's the kind of thing we encourage. I mean, I'm a church leader, I'm a pastor. I love it when someone says, I will follow Jesus wherever he goes. You know, whatever he's about, whatever, wherever his word takes me, I will follow him. But Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't refuse the man from following him, but he warns the man of what it's like to follow him. He says, look, like David, I don't know where I'm going to lay my head tonight. If foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I am roaming the wilderness. I don't know where I'm going to be. I don't know where I'm going to go. Can you handle that kind of life? And Jesus' warnings went on and on to potential disciples. He sought to clarify for them, this is going to be a difficult journey. He did not mix any, any statements about it at all. When in Matthew chapter 7, he said, walk through the narrow gate and journey on the difficult way. He said the path to destruction is a broad gate. The path to destruction is a highway. It's the easy way. It's the flow of culture and society and all of that. The prince of the power of the air will take you there easily. But if you want to follow me, it is the narrow gate. It is the difficult way. I've even said it before, but whenever Jesus was trying to shrink the number of people who followed him, he opened his mouth and he taught. Because when he shared, when he spoke, they saw the severity, the gravity, the difficulty of what he was saying. The cost that he communicated to his disciples was that they would take up their cross and that they would follow after him. But... Like Ittai, many of us in this room have been drawn not to David, but to Jesus. We've seen something beautiful about him, something wonderful about him, where we've come to the determination that Peter came to when he said to Jesus, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. I've got to follow you. 
Yeah, I see that it's difficult. Yeah, I see that I might be despised at times for being a disciple of Christ. I get that. I realize that. But Lord, there is no one else. There is no where else for me to turn to. I must turn to you. It's I was drawn to the beauty of David's character and nature, and so are we. If, we, if we're drawn to him, man, we're able to endure with him in the difficulty. Look, some of you, I realize, are called to serve the Lord in difficult and hostile environments. It might be in your career. It might be in your family. It might be in the friendships that have attached themselves to you over the years. But the reality is, Jesus is better than all of those things. Allow him and his beauty to strengthen you to say, even in the difficulty, I will follow after the Lord. Now let's see the next little group that came to David in verse 23. It says, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So the next little group that comes to David are these priests, Zadok and Abiathar. And there was something about the way everything went down that they felt that the ark of God should be with David and not in Jerusalem in the tabernacle with Absalom. Now just big picture reminder for you if you're new to the Bible and especially the Old Testament. In the Old Testament era, there was a tabernacle that God had designed. It was like a tent. And inside of it was a smaller room called the Holy of Holies where God told them to build a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It was not all that big, and it was made of gopher wood and then overlaid with gold, and they put the t original Ten Commandments inside of it. And they had a lid on top of it that was made of gold with angels engraved onto it, and that lid was called the mercy seat. And God said that where the angel's wings touched, that would be kind of like the strongest place of his presence in Israel, that he would dwell amongst the nation as they lived around the tabernacle, lived around the ark of God. So David, he had worked really hard years earlier to bring the ark into Jerusalem, into the tabernacle. And now these priests who, you know, they love David. He had funded the priesthood really well. He had encouraged the priesthood. He had stirred up religious worship in Israel once again. And so they love David. So when they see him flee, they're like, well, the ark needs to go with David. 
Now, it was quite a process to move the ark. You didn't just pick it up and throw it on a cart and just kind of, you know, ride out there as quick as you could. They'd made that mistake once before, and it cost them a little bit. So they had to move it real slowly, biblically, with sacrifices every six steps and stuff like that. So they do this whole thing, and then they get to David, and David's like, oh, I want you to go back. You know, it's a little bit of a bummer, I'm sure, for them. But when he sends them back, it's really beautiful. You had to notice this. He, he just simply says, I'm going to submit to whatever God wants to do in my life. You know, if it pleases God to bring me back, so be it. If I need to die out there in the wilderness, so be it. Whatever the Lord determines, whatever the Lord decides, I will submit to that. It's beautiful. It's amazing submission. But then mixed with that amazing submission, David also has a little bit of fight in him. Did you see that there? Because he tells the priest, he's like, so go back. You know, God, he, he will do what he wants to do in my life. But also, collect some intel for me. And take your sons and send them out secretly to this specified location by the river. And I'll be there and I'll collect the info that your sons share with me. So it's like he's saying, I'm going to submit to whatever God wants to do in my life. But I'm, I'm also going to fight a little bit for what God wants to do in my life. I'm going to lower myself underneath it, but I'm also going to say, you know, I think God made me the king of Israel. I think God put me on the throne. I think God promised that I would sit on my throne and that there would be no end to this kingdom. So I'm going to fight a little bit for the thing that I think God has given to me. It is a beautiful kind of submission. He is not just rolling over and dying and saying, whatever, we'll see what happens. I'll let the waves pummel me. He is saying, if this be what God desires for my life, I will go through it, but I will also fight and struggle for the other things that God desires in my life. This is submission that is so attractive in David. This is a submission, quite honestly, that is found in Jesus, but is so often lacking in our own hearts. First of all, to submit to God himself. There's popular doctrines that float around the church every now and then. And one of the doctrines that's seemingly popular amongst a lot of people these days is that we have, in our words, great power and authority. I saw some people the other day chatting about this online, and they said something, one of them got a huge promotion, a big raise, and they said to the other, see, this is what we spoke into existence so many years ago. We're old friends. We, we made a commitment. We spoke it into existence that these successes would come into our life. You didn't speak nothing into existence. It's God who speaks into existence. We don't push him around with our words. We're to come under. We're to submit. We're to follow him. Our words don't have that kind of weight or power or authority. But then, on the other hand, there's this other thing in David that was also in Christ, where Jesus came under the will of his Father. Father, not as I will, but as you will. But he, on the cross, was fighting for God's desire to redeem humanity. That there would be that thing in us that comes under, yet also fights for what the Lord desires. But beautiful submission. Now let's read our last character in verse 30. It says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told Absalom, Ahithophel is among the conspirators 
with Absalom. Ahithophel, remember, was David's main counselor, Bathsheba's grandfather who revolted to Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. What a cool prayer. He's just like, Lord, make his counsel just total nonsense, just foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. So he's also mourning. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are there with them, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, verse 37, David's friend came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now, this is really cool. This is actually my favorite character in this whole chapter. Because David is on his way up. It's not a big climb. And as he's climbing, leaving the city, he hears news. Ahithophel has turned from you. He's with Absalom. And he just prays instinctively, you know, responsively. He's just, okay, God, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He's going to counsel Absalom now. Make it folly. So he prays that, and then he gets, you know, a few hundred yards up the hill to the peak, and his buddy Hushai shows up. And he's mourning, he's got his garments torn and everything like that. And David thinks to himself, I have just prayed that God would turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness, and I now believe that God has answered my prayer. He just looks at Hushai and he's like, you are the answer to my prayer. I have prayed that Ahithophel's counsel would be foolish and you are going to bring it to pass for me. Go back and tell Absalom that you're now his counselor. You were my friend previously, but now you'll be his friend, that you're on his side. And when you turn his counsel, know that you've got a couple of spies in town, the priest's sons, tell them news and they will bring me any news that you want to share with me from Absalom's cabinet or Absalom's throne room. This was David inviting his men into a little subversive subterfuge. He's saying to them, look, I want you guys to secretly, quietly overturn that kingdom and that king from the inside out. This is beautiful. The reason this is so beautiful is because it is a mission that is so similar to what the Lord has given to so many of you that are seated here today. He has asked you and he has put you into various positions all throughout this community so that you might subversively overturn, so to speak, the counsel, the wisdom, the movement of this age and of this world. Listen to some verses that talk about this in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11 and 12, Paul says, I want you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly 
before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Romans 12, verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Let them watch your life. Titus 2, verse 8 through 10, he says, I want you to have sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. You know, just live in such a way, speak in such a way that there is nothing evil to say about you. 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Peter says it like this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He then went on to say it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then finally, Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6, Paul said, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Look, we can get so consumed in our careers or our education and doing the things that are in front of us, and that is fine and good for us to earn a dollar to give back to our community and society by providing whatever service we've worked for or whatever industry we're in. But in the midst of all of it, it is good for us to remember that the Lord has placed us there for a reason. There might be clients for us to impact or students for us to shape or properties for us to improve, or goods for us to deliver, or children to raise up and shoot out into this world. What I'm thinking of, just to give an example of this, would be maybe someone like a teacher, who as you're sitting there with your classroom in front of you, and all of these different students who come from all these different walks of life, who have so many different experiences in their lives. You'll have children who have had great despair and tragedy in their lives, who have been told all their lives that they won't amount to much, that they're nothing but a failure, and they've listened to these lies in their lives. And obviously, you are not going to be able to stand up on the first day of class and say to them, I want to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the whole story of the Bible, and you must repent and believe in the gospel. Who wants in today? You're not going to be able to do that, but you can subversively. In a moment when that child needs to hear something other than the lies they've been listening to. They need to hear of their value. They need to hear of that truth of, of their design and who God has made them to be. You can subversively speak in that moment into their lives. Providing hope, an, exa an example, someone who is good in a life and in a world where they don't experience much goodness. In a million different environments and situations, God has called so many of us to be that subversive voice, to influence. I mean, in this room, there are those influencing governments. There are those influencing education systems. There are those that are influencing the health of other human beings. And as you live out your life, just stop and consider, man, the Lord is quietly, slowly overturning the lies of the enemy with the truth that he wants me to live out and to speak into others. And so accept David's invitation to Hushai as Christ's invitation in your own life to go into all the world and to make disciples, sometimes in a subversive kind of way like Hushai.
So that's where I want to end the teaching today. I just want to pray for that. I want to ask the Lord to do that in your life and ask the Lord's blessing, especially on those who God has placed in strategic. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.